Welcome to Thread Conversations. Today we are sitting down with Gavin Dew, wanting to lead the BC Liberal Party. Welcome. We're super excited to have you. Um, Thread is a space where we're just going to have sort of like deeper, nuanced conversations around things that matter to Gen Z across BC. So we've sourced some questions. Before we get into all of that, we want to get to know you a little bit, you know, the human behind the human. Um, tell us like your story. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? You bet. So I'm a Vancouverite, born and raised. My parents uh, came here to go to university, met in Vancouver, stayed in Vancouver, and that gave me the opportunity to have the life that, that I've built here today. So I grew up here. Uh, I uh, studied at UBC, went on to do an MBA later on. I've worked in business for most of my career. And I've always been involved with politics, but mm -hmm. never in politics or never of politics. Uh, now we've got a really big moment happening in British Columbia politics where I think that beyond even just the party I'm running to lead, we're going through a generational transition, we're going through a values transition, we're going through a lot of wrenching change, whether that's climate change, whether that's COVID-related changes, whether that's uh, you know the changing nature of work. There's a lot that's happening right now. So I see this moment as, as a really, really key inflection point for where we go as a province. Mm. And that's what motivated me to get involved in politics. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, to, to me, Politics is one of those things that I've always been intrigued in. I had a grade six teacher that really got me into it, um, just getting involved in current events. But it's definitely something, even from afar, it can feel exhausting. You know, it can feel like something that you're like, ah, oh, this again. You know what? I think a lot of the time people feel as if politics is for somebody else. Mm. It's not for them, right? But I mean, whether you're interested in politics or not, politics is interested in you and it affects your day-to-day -day life. So I know that people often feel that sense of, exhaustion and they feel that sense of alienation and often especially for younger people they feel like they don't have any ownership mm. in a political party or in the political system but for me i think it's so important that people start to take ownership and that we start to try to create a political system and create a political party where people can actually feel invested and actually feel like they have some control they have some equity in it and it actually you know is out for them and that they're a part of it did you ever have a time where you sort of felt like, you know, early on in your career before you entered politics where you had that sort of same feeling of like, it, it feels like all the same. It feels like my my one vote doesn't matter. And what sort of like bridged that gap for you where you're like, now I actually want to like really get involved and commit a portion of my life to this. Yeah, I would say, I mean, half my life, right? I, right. I, I grew up, uh, we were talking before we started about my background playing in bands. I, mm -hmm. I grew up playing in, you know, uh, heavy metal bands. Uh, I wasn't very interested in politics. I certainly wasn't very interested in establishment politics. Um, it took uh, a series of just moments in my life for me to see myself as a constructive actor in the community or in the political system. Mm. I mean, for me, I had a big moment actually when I was in, uh, I was in grade 12. I had a teacher who'd been a mentor and an inspiration to me who was diagnosed with cancer. Wow. And uh, I uh, chose to organize a cancer fundraising drive where I convinced a bunch of people to shave their heads for cancer and ended up raising, you know, I thought I'd raise $500 and I raised 13,000. Wow, and it was this moment where I finally realized, hey, I can have positive being in the world. Mm -hmm. And I can have a positive impact and I can do that while having a bit of fun. Because mm -hmm. it was tongue in cheek and it was also about shifting the mood of a community that was really down and yeah. broken because we were going through this tragedy together. Right. So, you know, that was a moment for me. Um, I went to, to UBC where I became involved in turning around a 15,000 person charity rock concert wow. called Arch County Fair. And I learned business. I didn't know how to use Microsoft Excel. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know a thing. Do you, do you, do you excel it now? Yes. I'm, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh man, sorry. you got those dad jokes. You're ready. But uh, you know what? I, I, I just was the only person who was willing to put my hand up and say, you know what? This thing is broken. It needs fixing. I'm willing to do it mm -hmm. and I'll figure it out while we're flying the aircraft. Yeah. And, you know, that was a big moment for me that pulled me into student leadership at UBC, where I became an elected official representing 40,000 people running an 800 person organization when I was like 21. And it was this incredible lift for my career. Yes, but also just for the way that I thought about the world and the way that I saw my um, efficacy in the world, mm -hmm. because I, I saw that I could have impact. I saw that, you know what, there was nothing preventing me from having that meeting with that decision maker and saying, this is what people like me are thinking. This is what we want to see happen. This is what we're worried about. Mm. And you know what? We were talking about sustainability at that time. That was mm -hmm. about uh, 
uh, the early 2000s. Yeah. Heck, we were talking about housing affordability. I actually, my first big political fight was over an affordable student housing development on the UBC campus. And I was on the side of let's get it built. Mm -hmm. And all those early experiences really shaped the way that I think about politics. And, and I think in some ways, the fact that I came from outside of politics, I didn't grow up dreaming of being prime minister or premier. I, mm -hmm. I wasn't a young anything. I was completely disengaged from the system and quite alienated from the system. But I think that gives me a bit of a unique perspective because when I talk to people who don't see themselves in the system, mm -hmm. when I talk to people who are clawing and scratching at the door and wanting to have belonging, yeah. I know what that feels like. Yeah. Then I do have to ask on how this kind of de-alienation works for you or in your campaign. How do you get more youth voters to be interested in your campaign? Talk to them and take them seriously. Mm -hmm. Treat them like grown-ups. No sandboxes. Right? The thing that in my mind alienates young people from politics the most is when you treat them like they don't belong at the real table. When mm. you treat them as if the role available to them is, you know what, you can show up and knock on doors. You know what, you can show up and you can stand behind somebody and be photographed doing so. You know what, you can show up and if you're lucky, you can run in a riding that we haven't won in 50 years. And I think that when we do that to young people and especially when we allow uh, that to continue happening to people when all of a sudden, you know, they're a 35-year-old working professional and they're, treat, they're being treated as if they're a child. In our political system, I think it profoundly alienates people because it tells them we don't take them seriously. It tells them that their interests uh, are secondary and that they're just a kid to us. So I'm a very big believer in pulling people in and lifting them up and treating them as adults. We have lots of younger people that are working on my campaign. We have people of all ages. But you know, we have people that in almost any other campaign they would go to work on, they would be, hey, you know what? Here's a list of people you can call. Here's a list of you know, doors you can knock on if it was a general election campaign. We have people who are uh, younger and who are playing decision-making strategic roles in our campaign because we treat them like grown-ups. And I believe that's how you de-alienate people, is you bring them in and you treat them like they shouldn't be alienated and like they deserve to be at the table. Okay, great answer. <laughs> Uh, so we're, we're sort of like operating from a, the, the assumption that most people might not know a lot of things, right? We want to, we want to, uh, sort of what you're saying, you know, not have a sandbox, um, but we want to make sure anyone watching this that might not have been engaged in politics before sort of has the opportunity to, that they can understand. So, so they might not know left, they might not know right, they might not know any of these things, they might have heard it and don't really know. And the other sort of preface is like, I feel like a lot of people, when they think about politics, it's all the same thing, whether it's federal, municipal, provincial, American, whatever it is, it, to them, it's all the same thing. And so um, a lot of the questions might not be specific to, uh, we're, we're going to make it specific to BC, but we're going to operate from that perspective of like, the understanding might be everywhere. And so with that, why the BC Liberal Party? And again, I, I did this last time too, but the context is the BC Liberals is not the federal liberal, liberal party in Canada. We're gonna just assume everything you know, remove it, and we're gonna hear from you why the BC Liberal Party. Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think not only is it an important question for people to understand philosophically, it's also a question that our party has struggled to answer. Hmm. Um, so the BC Liberal Party uh, really is the economic coalition. I would ask you to think of it that way. Forget about left, forget about right, forget about liberals, conservatives, NDP, forget about all of that, and just assume that at its best, the BC Liberal Party is the economic coalition of this province. What does economic coalition mean? So what I mean by that is that means people who are in business, who want to be in business, people who are entrepreneurs, people who work in companies. We have tended historically to be the party that believes that the way you achieve prosperity and the way you might make things better for people and families is through a strong economy. Now, what I would say is the challenge before us is that uh, we are known as the party of the economy. We are known as the economic coalition, but we've allowed ourselves to be defined as really the party of the traditional economy. And I think for too long, our party, we use phrases like free enterprise. And I'm betting you have no idea what that means. And nobody knows what that means mm -hmm. anymore. But we still have these old frames where we're talking about politics as if it was the 90s. Right. And in order to really be the coalition of the economy, that needs to include the new emerging sectors of the economy. So whether we're talking about um, not just 
the tech sector, but you know, the actual component parts of the tech sector. You know, it's about understanding what's changing with Web3. It's about what, you know, knowing what an NFT is. Do, right? you, do you have any NFTs, any projects you're, you're I'm stuck not to currently work? invested in any, but I'm, you know, reasonably familiar. Uh, the, the point being though, as a party, we've got to figure out how do we make ourselves extremely relevant to newer emerging sectors that are a growing part of our economy. Because we are now an 80% services-driven economy, mm -hmm. and a huge amount of that is tech or tech-enabled. Right. You know, and it's not, so as, as a party, we have good fluency in our traditional economy, but we really need to modernize our understanding and the way we talk about and make policy around mm -hmm. the new economy. And with that, I think, comes appealing to that next generation of voters who yeah. are both the young people and families, but also the next generation of business leaders. Because I know a lot of tech entrepreneurs. I was talking to a tech CEO friend of mine the other day who told me outright that he had not spoken to anyone in government since, since 2015. Crazy. And this guy runs one of the mm -hmm. 20 largest tech employers in BC. Wild. Hasn't talked to anybody in government. And when you talk to folks who come from the tech sector, they'll tell you that they just don't, you know, when they go and they talk to government, they don't find a lot of people who understand their industries, their challenges, their opportunities with fluency. Mm -hmm. And that is a real challenge for us when we're trying to grow that sector. Yeah. Uh, and when we're trying to understand not just the immediate direct policies that drive that sector, but also the important kind of foundational aspects like affordability and childcare mm -hmm. that are bigger drivers than anybody realizes yeah. for the tech sector. So how, how does, um, you know, my, my background's tech, so I like hearing all that. Um, but how does that relate, you know, Enabling more tech, amazing. I'm I'm on board. How does it relate to affordability for someone in university or someone looking at, you know, trying to get a house? Housing's increased 100% in the last decade. Um, the average rent in the Okanagan is I think you know $1,500 a month for a one bedroom in Vancouver. I think it's $1,900. Um, how does that relate to, you know, affordability? Yeah, those are that's a really important question, and it brings it back to that philosophical question you were asking about why the BC Liberal Party. And at the end of the day, when you think about British Columbia politics, there are fundamentally two main parties. There's the BC Liberal Party and there's the IDP. There is of course also the Green Party that mm -hmm. plays a role. And at times there's sometimes a BC Conservative Party that has a little bit of vote share, but the main difference is NDP, BC Liberals. Fundamentally, the NDP tends to operate on the assumption that government is better at, solution, at solving problems. Mm. And the BC Liberals tend to operate on the belief that markets are better at solving problems. So when you look at issues like uh, housing affordability, you know the obvious question is, is the way to solve affordability for government to build a lot of housing, or is there a way to solve for affordability to enable a greater degree of supply? Mm -hmm. Because as it stands, when you look at an issue like affordability, we have 25% of the cost of a new housing unit is regulatory cost. It's literally mm. just permitting and red tape and delay. It can take 18 months to get a building permit. We have city councils elected all across this land who say they want to address affordability, but in many cases are, are continuing to stall projects from getting built. Because getting that supply online is a really important aspect of achieving affordability along with making sure you're getting the right supply online. Because mm. you need to hit that missing middle. You need to make sure you're building that affordable housing. You cannot, there is no possible way to meet the entire shortfall of affordable housing simply by government spending money. Because you can spend billions of dollars and get you know a few towers mm. out of it. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you can actually do the smart work of unlocking supply and of making sure that good incentives are set and of making sure you're doing smart things like expediting transit-oriented development, the amount of supply you can bring on stream and the amount of impact you can have on addressing affordability, uh, both on just the housing front and also more broadly, is so much bigger. And mm -hmm. that's you know where we've tended to come down is smart policy that uses economics, that uses business, that uses a, an appropriate role for the private mm -hmm. sector to solve those kinds of solutions. Right. So um, what, are, what are the sorts of pieces? You mentioned a few. I want to sort of like summarize it because I think it's easy to view affordability as like, ah, it's expensive. Right, and there's a lot of parts. Housing is one of them. You know, car insurance is a whole other conversation. Um, the 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 breaking down. What are the what are the things that really impact uh, affordability in housing? Like, this this didn't happen overnight. You know, we I, I feel like housing and affordability is a conversation that people talk about forever. Um, but at this point now, we're at this incredible point where I mean, the median house price is about a million dollars in BC, and and um, 
just trying to imagine purchasing a house. You know, there was this idea of the Canadian dream. You know, uh, it, it feels almost unattainable at this point. You know, because you know, you go to school, you have that that um, that cost. You know, you, you have this sort of expectation. You you do the hard work, and you sort of you have that opportunity. So. Um, before we just say, why don't we have it? What are the things impacting this? You know, you, you mentioned municipalities um, and and supply in general. Like, what are the pieces that really drive up housing costs? That's a you've brought up so many layers in that question. I'm going to try. I apologize. To, no, don't apologize. <laughs> Thank you. But um, I'm going to try to hit them all. The first thing is, I, I just want to go back to that point around the Canadian dream. Yeah. Right. That is everything. That's everything. Right. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to work hard play by the rules, get ahead, get a home. That's what you're supposed to be able to do. That's actually why our society functions is because people have a justified true belief that if they do what they're supposed to do, right? If they go to school, if they get the, the kind of education they've been told is gonna to allow them to get ahead, if they work hard, if they abide by the law, if they play by the rules, then they're supposed to be able to make it. And it feels like that's slipping away. It really does. And, and, it, and it feels like, um, that that is no longer true and so if that's how society functions you know like what can we do to sort of either bring it back do we need a different dream exactly we've got to restore confidence in that dream because the thing is when that dream slips away then people stop striving for it and that is fundamentally when you go back to kind of political philosophy right if you think about and i'm being very broad brush here right but if you think about kind of more of a um an ndp left philosophy that tends to be based on the idea that everything is a relationship of exploitation. Everything is inherently a relationship of conflict, contention, and exploitation. Whereas if you think about, let's say, uh, call it a centrist or a center-right or a classical liberal or BC liberal philosophy, it's this idea that, again, you can work hard. You can get ahead. That belief in that dream is so incredibly critical. They call it the American dream south of the border, mm -hmm. right? And we feel uncomfortable saying the Canadian dream. It's a little bit different, but at the same time, it fundamentally is the same proposition. Mm -hmm. Now, social mobility is key, right? Social mobility. What, is, what, does that, what does that mean? Social mobility means the idea that you could go from being poor to being wealthy in your lifetime. Right? This idea that you are not born into anything. You are not born into a permanent caste or class system. You have the ability to work hard, to get ahead, and to move up the socioeconomic ladder so that you can build a better life for your children mm -hmm. and grandchildren. It's the American dream. It's the Canadian dream. It's the immigrant dream. And increasingly, the American dream is only available in Canada because social mm -hmm. mobility in America has actually collapsed. You've mm -hmm. had a glass ceiling and a glass floor. You have a lot of kind of... Um, 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 ossification or a lot of just that's the wrong word a lot of just uh, uh, people stalling out in in one strata mm -hmm. right we still have social mobility in Canada to a far greater extent all the numbers mm -hmm. show us but at the same time especially in these expensive housing jurisdictions mm -hmm. like the Vancouver area and increasingly more of BC you feel that that drift happening that mm -hmm. almost spiritual drift where it's not just about policy it's about a loss of confidence that, mm -hmm. hey, you know what, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, I'm looking at the numbers, and I thought I needed $50,000 mm -hmm. for a down payment, but by the time I saved $50,000, I needed 100, right? Right. So it's about restoring confidence in that dream, both through policy, but also through just the way that we talk to people and the mm -hmm. way that we demonstrate that we're, we're on their side. So there's a huge kind of spiritual dimension to it mm -hmm. where we need to just make sure people feel as if the system's not rigged against them. Mm -hmm. There is also a huge amount of policy work that needs to be done. You asked about the ingredients of affordability, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really important to understand this. Vancouver is not the most expensive housing jurisdiction in North America, but it is the most unaffordable. And the reason for that is that unaffordability is the ratio between average household income and average home price. So we have mm -hmm. not been seeing wage growth to keep up with housing value growth. And that's one of the real disconnects that has been happening. We don't have enough head offices. We don't have enough well-paying jobs. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we've been creating conditions, frankly, that in some cases are driving jobs away. If you look at some sectors, forestry being a good example, you have BC forestry companies investing hundreds of millions of dollars in America, mm. right? You have other cities, Calgary, for example, is looking to hunt tech companies out of Vancouver. 
because you've got a lower cost of living, more affordable housing, lower tax rates. So all of a sudden it's more possible to build something there. So there's mm. all these layers to it. We need to make sure that we have opportunity. We need to make sure we have good, well-paying jobs because then people can actually afford homes. And then of course, we need to address issues like supply. Right. And we, need, we have to be really honest with ourselves that housing is not one issue. So, so, so supply being more houses? Supply being more homes. Right. And the key is it's about the right kinds of homes. Just mm. if, if all I build is more $3 million luxury penthouses, the problem is not necessarily being solved. It's about making sure right. there's the, the right supply. So for example, one solution that's very important in that regard is what's called transit-oriented development. Right, right. We'll so break that down. Yeah, so okay, um, let's say we build a rapid transit line. Well, let's use the Canada line as an example. I've worked on, on some projects adjacent to that. You could also talk about the Broadway line, Surrey Rapid Transit, anywhere where you're investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars from taxpayers. The, the new line out to Langley. Exactly, yeah. exactly, right? So when you build those rapid transit lines, those are creating natural nodes where, of course, you should be building affordable housing. Right. But we actually make it inordinately difficult. I live in East Vancouver. There is a SkyTrain station at 29th and Nanaimo near my neighborhood. It was completed in 1986. There are single family houses across the street. That makes no sense. I, I, used, to live, I used to live literally a 30 second walk to that train station. There you go. I'm sure it was convenient for you. It was. And I it would rented have been a room. Exactly. Yeah. It would have yeah. been convenient, of course, yeah. for six story walk up or whatever, or, or towers there. Yeah. The point being transit oriented development is about making sure that if taxpayers are investing in transit, you're not basically insulting them by saying, hey, invest in this transit. We're not going to build any housing next to it, right? right? So how do you expedite that? How do you make it more efficient? How do you make it so that instead of spending four or five years with council arguing over whether they should do the blindingly obvious, it's just baked into the equation. Which, which council? Uh, any council municipally. So, right, right. So like cities in that, that, cause I mean, is that transit like a provincial so, yes. initiative or like, you know, there's sort of a combination. I right. won't get too far down the rabbit right. hole, but there are layers of all layers of government are involved yeah. in the delivery of transit and transit projects. Right. But the level of government that that, that sets zoning mm -hmm. is municipalities. Right. Right. So what if, you can build, where you can build it, how exactly, high you can build it, exactly. what you can use it for. So if, as an example, I worked on a project called Marine Gateway at Marine mm -hmm. Drive in Canby. Right. Right. It's a very obvious development. When yeah. you go there, you go, oh, okay, I've just gotten off the Canada line. Yes, there should be a tower here with yeah. lower parking requirements. This makes sense. It was a four-year fight. Mm. And the city did not basically drag its heels to get this thing moving such that, you know, the, the Canada line was up and running. It was fully operational and the city was just starting to plan that corridor, that Canby corridor. And with it, the natural opportunity to build affordable housing adjacent to transit where you can reduce people's requirements on single occupancy vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we could talk about this forever, but the point <laughs> is we need to have smart policy mm -hmm. that looks at all the dimensions of how housing fits together and that realizes there's not one easy solution to housing. You've got to understand the ways in which all these different factors come together and be able to work collaboratively across levels of government and with, uh, you know, with home builders to make sure you're actually delivering on the kind of the right supply that you need on a timely basis so mm -hmm. you can have more homes for more people. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question would be with the, because this is a municipal issue dealing with zoning rights and et cetera, um, how would the provincial government kind of fit into this framework? Oh, you're asking the most important question. Here we so, go. Uh, <laughs> municipalities in British Columbia don't exist. Interesting. They're a construct, right? And I'm. I'm being very legalistic here, but it they makes sense. Yeah, you're right, because right? they legally don't have any charter rights. Exactly. So municipalities exist under, effectively, uh, we're, we're simplifying here, but municipalities are a function of the community charter. And Vancouver has its own Vancouver charter. So theoretically, not that I'm suggesting you should do this, theoretically, the province actually could just come along and say, you're going to do this now. Hmm. Now, of course, you're not trying to pick a fight with everybody all the time. <laughs> but as an example, um, and this is a very real example, the legislation for which is very easy to enact. Um, if I came along and I said, okay, if taxpayers from across Canada and across British Columbia are going to invest billions of dollars to build this rapid transit line, mm -hmm. then the quid pro quo is that around every station on this rapid transit line is going to be a 500 or an 800 meter descending density cone mm -hmm. where there is going to be affordable housing with lower parking requirements. That's right. just the deal, mm -hmm. right? Right. So mm -hmm. if that became 
the deal and the way you enact that's a, you know we don't need to go down a rabbit hole here there's, there's a lot right I there's a lot there. within right this is exactly. one of those things where you're like yeah, yeah this sounds incredible let's exactly. do this but it's a very doable proposition right. where you could simply say okay if rapid transit then affordable housing mm -hmm. and then every municipality knows that's the deal and if you're a homeowner and there's a rapid transit station that has announced you know the pin is dropped on a map it's going to be in your neighborhood you know what's coming You've right. got some stability and some predictability around what the path forward is going to be. You know that, you know what, if you're excited about that, it's going to be great for your neighborhood. If you're not excited about it, it's an opportunity for you to have, you know, multiple years to think about selling your home and moving mm -hmm. somewhere else that is going to have the living conditions right. that you want going forward. And un undeniably then also, if you know, there's now all of a sudden something in your home or, or near your home that would probably also increase the value of yes it absolutely would yeah. it absolutely would right so translic has had the um the ability to capture land lift for years we don't need to get down mm -hmm. the rabbit hole on this uh, i keep saying down the rabbit hole let's not go down the rabbit hole but <laughs> the point being that there is a lot of opportunity just to use these kind of smart innovative surgical mm -hmm. policy tools available to us to enable more housing Right. right now, we have a situation where I can tell you, because I've worked on housing projects, it is nigh on impossible mm. to build things uh, in, in this province. There are cities that make it virtually impossible. And in fact, a huge number of uh, home builders who are based in the Vancouver area actually go south of the border. They go to Calgary. Wow. They will go and build stuff just about anywhere else because it is harder, longer, riskier, and more expensive to build things in this jurisdiction. So we've mm. just got to clean that mess up yeah. if we want to get housing built for people. Yeah. One, one of the other notes that you mentioned uh, that I want to sort of like pivot to is uh, the one set of affordability is, you know, there's housing, there's all the other things. The other part is um, increasing people's wages. Um, and so that's sort of the other side of affordability. Um, what are what are some of the things we can do in specific, you know, sectors? There's, I mean, you, you mentioned on tech already and it's close to my heart, but BC also is historically has a lot of natural resources and a lot of our economy was based from, you know, whether it's mining or forestry, there's a lot of incredible things that we have. Um, what are some things we can do? So I'm going to actually take a little bit longer to set up some context here. We have this history of, of these incredible parts of our economy that providing a substantial amount of jobs. Um, some of those might be perhaps at odds with um, things like sustainability and climate change. And so uh, historically, it feels like the arguments, climate change or economy, which it, it feels ridiculous when it's that and it can't be that nuanced. Because if we talk climate change and we say we can't have these industries, then we have to go back to affordability. We're losing all these jobs. And so what are some of the ways that we can sort of bridge that gap to say, like, how do we, does, does it have to be so divided? I don't think it has to be at all. I think that we, we, Politicians choose to make the issue divisive if they think it serves their political interests, mm. bluntly. Uh, I think that it is a willful political choice to say that the economy and the environment are at odds with one another in any fundamental way. I just don't, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. I think that there are always going to be trade-offs, right. right? There are always going to be um, questions around transition. Right? Are we talking right. about a 30-year, a 40-year, or a 50-year energy transition? And what are the policies that we're going to have to make if we believe that we're on a 30-year timeline, a 40-year timeline, a 50-year timeline? Those are real grown-up conversations we have mm -hmm. to be prepared to have where we're figuring out, okay, what is the cost that we are willing and able to accept mm -hmm. uh, as we try to make these transitions? I think we also have to start with a brass tax reality that Canada represents 1.5% of global emissions and mm. BC is a fraction of that. Now, there are people that will cite that statistic and then say, so we shouldn't do anything. No. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, for that to be the conversation, you know? No, that can't Especially be the Especially this past year. It can't mm -hmm. be the conversation. We have to be real about climate change, but we also have to be real about the fact that our airshed, mm -hmm. or, you know, it's a global airshed, our impact is a portion of a percentage point. So then if we want to truly have global impact, then we need to be focused on exporting innovation, mm. exporting mm -hmm. leadership, exporting. This is why LNG is significant because it's about exporting a cleaner transition. Uh, LNG being? Liquefied natural gas, right. right? Which is a good substitute. So um, the two, two of the most uh, polluting countries in the world are China and India, both of which are heavily dependent on coal power. 
right? right? Coal-fired power plants are still continuing to grow in those jurisdictions. They're heavily polluting and they're pumping pollutants into mm. a global airshed. So uh, natural gas is not without environmental impact, but it's a significantly less impactful uh, transition fuel, is what mm -hmm. people talk about, right. uh, that can help to reduce the dependency on coal-fired coal -fired power for mm. those two rapidly growing economies. Right. So and it's like a global thing with the recent um, discussion at COP26, which is the United Nations uh, summit for environmental or activism and just rights in general. And so we're exactly seeing that where even nations such as South Africa, which are almost 80% dependent on coal, are transitioning to natural gas as a cleaner way of not only like less polluting the air around them where they're burning it, uh, but also just transit wise, it's significantly easier through pipelines and it's much safer through pipelines. Exactly. So that has been a huge opportunity and will continue to be a huge opportunity for us here in British Columbia. Here's another great example. And I, I've said this before, um, as a political party, as a BC Liberal Party, we need to be the party of people that want to drive electric vehicles. Mm. And we also need to be the party of people that want to mine the resources that go into them. Mm. Because sometimes there is this artificial divide that people go to, which is, oh, okay, well, you know, there's the there's the EV driving, latte sucking, lower mainland people, and they're totally at odds with you know the folks in Vanderhoof that mm -hmm. you know just want to mine everything. That's not true. Mm. The biggest opportunity for our mining sector, and we have a fantastic mining sector, is the growth of electrification. Right, mm. the amount of demand for cobalt, uh, nickel, aluminum, metallurgical coal, which is used to produce steel. Right, that's different from thermal coal, which is used mm -hmm. to produce energy, right? The amount of demand that is going to continue to be there as we see electrification uh, is absolutely huge. And that is a big opportunity for rural British Columbia. Mm. It's a huge opportunity for our resource sector. And we need to see that as a conversation about how things fit together, not right. a conversation about dividing people. We also have to be really, really honest um, when you drive an electric vehicle when you use uh, you know an EV battery it's also got rare earth minerals in it yeah. that are mined through what's called artisanal mining in sub-saharan africa by 8-year-old kids okay mm. this is the reality it's not without impact right. so we have we can't just be sitting i drive an electric vehicle right yeah. it's not it doesn't make me a better person right i acknowledge that there is an environmental trade-off there is a human rights right. trade-off there are impacts even if i'm driving an electric vehicle mm. so let's be honest about that that's what I think is what our politics needs to be is we can't just do this thing where we say, hey, you know what? I drive an electric vehicle and you drive an oil powered vehicle. So I'm a good person and you're a bad person. Right. It doesn't work that way. Right. In many cases, uh, making the transition might not, might not be economically viable for someone. Yeah. They might live in a community where it just doesn't make sense at this point. Yeah. Good. <clears throat> let's be accepting and let's be honest about that. Let's figure out how we actually work together yeah. in order to move together on these things so we can have both a clean environment and a strong economy. Yeah. I mean, one of I, I recently bought a car last year. Um, and one of the trade offs, there's, a, there's a, I had this thought like, do I go hybrid? Do I go this? Do I go? And, you know, I, I was between the interior and Vancouver a lot. That's a very scary thing in the wintertime to like not have gasoline. You know, like there's a lot of things where like, if I get stuck somewhere, how long do I have? Like, there's a lot of um, pieces of infrastructure that are sort of missing. Exactly, exactly. And it's very easy, I think, for people who are in, uh, say, Vancouver to make assumptions about, hey, listen, I've got this electric car and it works great for me. And why don't you just get one? And the reality is when people kind of take this high ground, it starts really getting under the skin of people who might live in, you know, Chetwin. Right. And there's no EV infrastructure yeah. and it doesn't make any sense. And the temperatures are cold in the winter and it's not going to work for them. So we have to avoid getting into these artificial divides where we're pitting people against one right. another and just be honest about where the technology is, where people are at, how the economy is evolving and just not pit people against one another over these issues. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering what kind of mitigation strategies do uh, or would your party like to implement to kind of deal with these issues of um, just a lack of affordability for EVs and other just like infrastructure in general? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about EV infrastructure, I think that's a really, really important question. Um, there's a lot of different things going on there and we could spend an hour talking about it. Um, we are actually the jurisdiction in North America with the highest uptake of electric vehicles. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, that's and neat. it's really, isn't it? Yeah. So we're doing really well on that front. And one of the reasons that's working is that we have, uh, you know, 
values and attitudes that are conducive to that. Mm -hmm. um, we have had good incentives uh, around, you know, for example, there are uh, incentives for the purchase of an electric vehicle. Uh, I would say, honestly, one of the big winners has been an incentive that, that uh, the BC Liberals put in, which costs very little money, but makes a big impact. And that is that if you drive an electric vehicle, you can get a high occupancy vehicle sticker to put on the oh, back of your vehicle. I think about that every time. Right? So can you I explain often, that, sorry? I, so, I'm not too familiar with so, that. So obviously an HOV lane right, ah, is intended okay. for, for uh, multi-passenger vehicles. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. We want people to get out of single occupancy vehicles. Um, those lanes are unfortunately uh, quite underutilized. So one of the smart things that was put into place uh, under the previous PC Liberal government was uh, to make it so that you could actually uh, register your electric vehicle or your, your, your lower emission vehicle um, and you could get a sticker, basically a bumper sticker. So you know, this policy costs a grand, what, dollar a car plus postage, yeah. right? And you could put them in the back of your car and now because you're driving a low emission vehicle, you can drive in the HOV lane. So I often commute between Vancouver and Abbotsford. That saves me 15 minutes each way. Wow. Right? So it's that's basically like an incentivization for you to actually But it's a very inexpensive that. incentive. Yeah. That's the key thing. And I think that's where like we're going to have to get into this. And, and mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I get emails about this probably three or four times a week. Uh, and that is that question around how do we manage incentives? Because we are the jurisdiction with the fastest uptake of electric vehicles in North America. Electric vehicles are coming down in price and people are making their own market-based decisions to buy those vehicles. So at some point, it becomes a matter of, okay, do we need to continue to have incentives if they're actually going down in price and they're competing mm. in an open market, right? You wanna have those incentives to get early adopters to use the vehicles. You need to build electric vehicle infrastructure so that people have confidence, they don't have range anxiety, they know mm -hmm. they're gonna be able to charge their vehicle, right? But at some point, you also have to realize Electric vehicles, vehicles are not paying gas tax that pays for roads, right? They're actually right. not paying into kind of the pool of taxes. Mm -hmm. So as we see a greater and greater transition of more and more share of transportation happening with zero emission vehicles, we're still going to have to pay for roads, right? Right. So there's going to be some really interesting, tough conversations that happen there around roads, around infrastructure, around um, what is the point at which we stop having the government build so much of the electric vehicle infrastructure? If you go to Europe, I was speaking recently with a gentleman who advises Boris Johnson on EV infrastructure. And uh, there's a lot of very interesting models that you can do in Europe that you really mm. can't do here. Right. Where there are, for example, off-grid charging stations where you know, mm. you're driving down the highway and somebody has set up a solar array. They're capturing their own power. They're selling it to you when you go plug in your electric right. vehicle. And because um, everyone knows that a gas station often has a convenience store. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a different model. When you're charging an electric vehicle, you're looking at a 20 to 40 minute charging cycle. Yeah. So it makes sense to have a quick serve restaurant, for example. Right. So there's a lot of really interesting Inter models yeah. that we can, like right now we actually don't make it very easy for EV infrastructure players to participate mm -hmm. in, in this market. A lot actually set up here and now they're all doing business in the States because we've made it so hard for them to actually build infrastructure here. Right. But think about you know driving up the Coquihalla and being able to stop at a well-built-out electric vehicle charging station with a quick-serve restaurant with all you know your modern conveniences built in without there being an undue amount of uh, of government taxpayer dollars spent right. to build that infrastructure. Yeah. Right. And that's where again, if the market is willing to build it, let's enable markets to be successful right. in that way and to use private sector risk capital rather than having to spend more taxpayer dollars because there's only so many of those to go around right and I, I mean i imagine at this point too the fact that there's such an uptake it increases the private sector excitement in a place like bc if we can sort of enable you know if there's all, all these evs there's going to be all this need and so if we can enable in theory yes but i mean frankly there's a number of those charging companies that set up here because they thought that there would be that demand but the mm. way that various different um, stuff has been done by government it's actually made it very hard for them to set up here right we also let's be brass tax here folks when it came to ride hailing, mm -hmm. we sent a very loud signal to the market, and that was if you want to be innovative, don't do it here. Because it took us seven years and two governments to figure out how to regulate ride hailing badly. You could actually <laughs> do ride hailing in Mogadishu before you could do it here. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about ride hailing. Um, it's, we, it's, we don't need to go into that. No, it's, it's just a matter it's, of, it's, it sent yeah. a signal yeah. to 100%. innovators. It sent a signal to people that might be looking at our jurisdiction and saying, hey, you know what? I'd love to go do something innovative on electric vehicle infrastructure there, and I'm prepared to spend 
private sector dollars to yeah. go build out that charging plaza on the highway. I'm prepared yeah. to spend dollars to go and try to get market share doing this. But if I look at British Columbia and I see a jurisdiction that yeah. feels as if it is inhospitable to innovation, yeah. then I think that has a very significant dampening effect on the environment for investment. And that's 100%. a really big issue for us. Yeah. You went go, you know, going back to what the point you made earlier about uh, well-paying jobs. Yeah. The truth is that Canada and British Columbia have increasingly developed reputations as jurisdictions that are uh, unstable and unpredictable for investment. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when people don't want to invest here, that means good, well-paying jobs don't get yeah. created here. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot. I have a lot of friends in the tech space, and and I have a lot of friends that work in venture capital, you know, in the states and SF, and we've had conversations back and forth about you know how long does it take to close a, a seed round you know, like your first round of funding for for a company generally tech or some sort of startup you know here it's got to be what couple, a month or two a couple months and and then you know in SF I'm working with a team and and uh, they spent two days what and your point's a really interesting one I was I was thinking in terms of frankly major projects and and you yeah. know, physical infrastructure but as it relates to the tech sector there are some of the same encumbrances as well right in terms of the time to close in terms of the amount of capital you can raise mm -hmm. I think we have kind of thrown off the shackles of that belief that you can't raise big here yeah. when you look at the number of unicorns especially that we're this past out here, year yeah and, and unicorns incredible. are like companies worth over a billion dollars it's not they have a billion dollars it's that they're on paper worth mm -hmm. a billion which might turn into nothing. That's mm -hmm. part of the bet, but it's it's a lot of like private people. Sort of Co COVID in. has really kind of been the death of distance in mm. terms of um, some aspects of the ways that people work and work together. Yeah. Um, so there has been obviously it's a horrible negative thing on the whole, but right. there's been some interesting ways in which people have adapted to the pandemic and to the requirement mm. for social distancing, and among other things, that has meant that just that um, crucible effect that you get in a San Francisco. Right, it is is lessened because if everyone can have a meeting by Zoom, right? If the requirement yeah. for a physical oh, meeting is reduced, the ability to collaborate across distance is reduced. Yeah, that has transformative effects not only on the workplace but also yeah. on relationships like capital investments. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember why I ever took in-person meetings. Like I, it's, <laughs> I have that conversation with some friends all the time. Like, mm -hmm. why do we do this? And and it's it's actually interesting uh, for me. A lot of my closest friends, I don't live in the same city. I don't think I have any close friends. Actually, that's going to be a really bad thing to say. Pretend I didn't say that. I have close friends in are Kelowna. We, are, we, are we going to cut this out? I don't know. We'll probably leave it. No, Matt's saying no. I love you guys, Kelowna. Um, <laughs> the like couple people that are closest to my life, I don't. We don't live in the same city. We met online. We met on LinkedIn of all places, and we get together. And it was it's harder now with COVID, but we've actually our relationships are based on FaceTime. Yeah, and it was really interesting. Um, how that shift has really like taken place, and, mm -hmm. and I talked to other people. There was like generally people that have built larger businesses that weren't remote first um it was just really interesting because like wait all your friends don't live here like what you don't have like well now let me throw you for a loop now think about doing politics now think about running to lead a political party in COVID, as the ways in which people communicate and form and maintain relationships mm -hmm. are fundamentally evolving mm -hmm. right there's just a huge challenge and an opportunity there when you think about how even do you create cohesion within mm. a political party which inherently is kind of a tribe it's a family right mm -hmm. how do you create that cohesion uh with a diminished ability to gather in person especially when you're talking about different groups uh with different backgrounds different generations different geography different value sets and it is uh the bc liberal party is is what's often called a big tent party Mm -hmm. It's pretty big. What does right? that What does that mean? What that really means is it includes people from across a wide range of different you know ideas and beliefs. Right. So you might see you know downtown Vancouver tech people and you know ranchers, right, and uh, oil and gas workers, and 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 right? right. So you're seeing this vast range of different people mm -hmm. who again are really brought together by one shared vision, which is. Uh, you know, the coalition of the economy and the belief in hard work and perseverance and, you know, that that Canadian dream. Right. But uh, tying all those people together, connecting with all those people uh, in an era where the ways we are all connected to one another are evolving drastically mm -hmm. is a is a huge challenge, but mm -hmm. I, I think also an opportunity. Right. So how did 
how did the Liberal Party or up to this point kind of deal with that issue? And what are you guys doing new that is transitioning to a different model? That is the million dollar question. Mm. Uh, I think that, now this is gonna go down the rabbit hole I've said that. Let's do it. You know what? Let's do it. We're well. We're we're, we're, we're going to change it from down the rabbit hole to we're going to just start a thread. We're just going to start a thread on this. There you go. There you go. So um, the history of the BC Liberal Party traces back to the early 90s. And I'm going to try to compress this, but there was a previous party that existed that was called Social Credit. Mm -hmm. Right? So there was Social Credit and the NDP. Social Credit formed government most of the time, and the NDP lost most elections. And you know, social credit, that kind of coalition, really was liberals and conservatives and an economic coalition, and it existed mostly to prevent the NDP from winning <laughs> elections. Um, here's the challenge. The BC Liberal Party has spent the last 30 years uh, framing itself against the 90s NDP. Hmm. So social credit collapsed in the late 80s. The BC Liberal Party uh, came from really nowhere uh, to win a, a significant number of seats in the 1991 election. And the NDP formed government. So all of a sudden, if you had been a Socred, someone who supported mm -hmm. social credits, well, now you were a VC liberal. Right. Right? In 1996, that coalition had been largely consolidated and the BC liberals went into election against the 90s NDP and just barely lost. Mm. Won the popular vote, didn't win the election, Hopes were dashed, and that coalition hadn't quite finished coming together yet. Right. In 2001, ancient history for most people listening to this. 2000, 2000, were, were you alive? Yeah, I was born in 99. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I oh, always right. joke about the fact yeah. that like, I, I, I don't remember this stuff. Right? I mean, I, I, I would have been, gosh, I, first of all, I wasn't in Canada. Second of all, I was like three or four. Right, yeah. but I mean, this is, this is ancient history, but this is yeah. also the origin story of this party. Right. So the interesting challenge is, how do you tell the story of who we are and what our values are mm -hmm. to a massive cohort of voters that weren't born or weren't here right. when many of these things that are touchstones in the history of this party mm -hmm. for an older generation were happening, right? Right? Because in 2001, we blew out the NDP, 77 seats to two. It was the end of the 90s NDP. It was a huge moment in BC political history. I couldn't vote yet. and. You were kids. Yeah. You were infants. <laughs> we were barely, like, barely alive. Yeah. Right, right. But again, that was a moment. It was this big mm -hmm. historical moment. Mm -hmm. And in 2005, effectively, our, our campaign was don't go back to the 90s NDP. And people decided to not go back to the 90s NDP. <laughs> in 2009, uh, we introduced uh, the revenue neutral carbon tax in addition to some other environmental policies, which were smart policies. And our argument basically was don't go back to the 90s NDP because we have environmental policy. And we won that election. We then went through a change in leadership. Christy Clark became the premier. And in 2013, the campaign was, don't go back to the 90s NDP because we have a new leader. We See, <laughs> we've changed, so you don't need to change parties. And we won that election. And then in 2017 and in 2020, to be honest, we just kept on saying, don't go back to the 90s NDP. And a whole lot of people didn't even remember what that meant, mm. right? But that was how mm. we framed ourselves as a party for so long, we'd thought of ourselves, right. you know, definition by negation, don't be the 90s NDP. Mm -hmm. Now the challenge before us is that we're not just choosing a new leader, we're in some ways reconceptualizing our identity for 2021 and 2024 and 2028, where it's a matter of who are we, what do we stand for, not just what do we stand against? How right. are we modern and relevant and contemporary <clears throat> in an era where our economy has changed drastically and continues to change drastically, mm -hmm. and where the expectations and wants and dreams and desires of a new generation of voters has changed, right. and the electoral boundaries are changing, and all of these things are changing so drastically. That's why as we go through this BC Liberal Leadership Contest, um, I often make the case, you know, we need someone who is of today. Right. right? We can't go backward. We can't be focused on how great it used to be. We have to actually be articulating a forward-looking policy that tells people, this is our vision of the future. This is right. where we're going. This is why you should be excited. This is why we're excited. And this is why you're going to be part of our party and our movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I, even- One thing I do have to clarify is you didn't give me an answer of what the current status of the party is. What is, at least to you, since you are running for the head, no, that's what a good will question. the Liberal Party mean? Yeah, you know what? I think to your question on the current status, 
Um, I think our party is in an existential crisis. Mm. I think our party is wrestling with who we are. I think it's a good thing, right? We have this is a very long campaign. It I but I, I've joked. Um, I have a one year old son. He was born on November twenty eighth of last year, and in the hospital room, I was talking with my wife Erin about, hey, am I going to run for this thing? <laughs> it's been more than a year. Yeah. And by the time we get to February third, which is when voting starts, effectively, you know, it will have been a fourteen month campaign. Right, and it's really long, but that's really healthy because our party, mm. in some ways, we have held back these big existential questions we need to ask ourselves. We kind of went into a series of elections where we didn't reinvent ourselves. We didn't find the time to reflect and catch up with the times. So where are we today? We're wrestling with that and we're figuring out, are we going to move forward? And if so, how? And who we choose to lead us is obviously going to inform that, but in some ways it's also going to reflect the decisions we've made as a party around how we want to think of ourselves and be thought of going forward. And you know, I've made the argument here and in other places that that needs to include um, you know, uh, 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 emerging industrial sectors, tech. I've talked about the $8 billion cannabis sector uh, as an area that you know we're really not engaged with, but it also is about making sure that we are relevant to the next generation of, of people and families, <laughs> because the battleground politically in this province is urban and suburban young people and families. And if we do not find a way to be much more relevant to people like yourselves, uh, then we're not going to win the next election. So that to me is absolutely pivotal. You know, something that I'm always curious about is we're, we're asking a lot out of politicians. Um, you should. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, in the sense of like, there is infinite things you're responsible for. There's, you know, it's, it's kind of like everything, you know, from, from tech to healthcare to this, to this, to this, like, uh, how do you approach decision-making or even reviewing policy or considering policy or even conversation when you have to like be the master of everything? I think you have to start with admitting you could never be the master of anything. Politics mm -hmm. starts with humility. Right? So then how, how do you approach um, just diving into these conversations? Like, how, like, if it's something you don't really know, how do you get into those rooms and how do you approach trying to understand it enough to make, you know, where, where I'm coming from is we've all seen the videos of uh, the U.S. Congress interviewing people in A series of tubes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. Um, so like, how do you approach that when you're coming into this space, you're, you know, you're meeting with these people, uh, what are some of the approaches that you're taking to really understand? I think that, um, as a politician, as someone who is in politics, you have to be fundamentally curious. You really have to want to know the answers to questions because at the end of the day, you're going to be bombarded with information. Right? Mm -hmm. You have to have the hunger and the curiosity to want to know more. I think you have to have an ability to connect the dots mm -hmm. between seemingly disparate pieces of information. And you have to have a solid moral compass or a compass of principles because you will rarely be a technical decision maker in politics. Mm -hmm. It's very important to understand what your role is and is not as an elected official. So what you can do is you can set the tone. What you can do is set an environment in which some of the right questions get asked. How is this gonna impact people and families? How is this going to impact you know, the growth of this new sector? Uh, what are the unintended consequences of this policy? You know, so being able to ask the right questions, I think is very important. Um, I think that I, I, I believe that you know my background is in business, but I've been very diversified across a number of sectors, right? I mean, I've worked in mm -hmm. post-secondary, I've worked in the resource sector, I've worked in tech, I've worked on all manner of different businesses, childcare, you name it. And to me, that has put me in a good position where I feel comfortable that I can walk into a room knowing that I do not know the answer. Mm. You have to have enough confidence to be able to walk into a situation and know, I'm not sure I know the right answer here. I'm not even sure I have the right information, but I have the humility to seek that information. I have the hunger to get that information. And I feel as if I can make a principled decision based on the information 
available to me. So one of, one of the pieces that was really interesting to me is, you know, you're not necessarily the end informant of policy, um, which I think is actually something I never really expected uh, to hear, which I'm actually relieved and like refreshed to hear. Um, but you also said earlier that a lot of things take a long time, you know, when we even going back to like zoning, yes. you know, these things take, so like, how do you balance the two of those? Cause if you don't know, you don't know. And you want to make sure you don't have these, you know, side effects and these outcomes that, especially if you're building something physically, it's, you know, there's a consequence to not thinking it through, but there's clearly a consequence to maybe overthinking or other bureaucraticness, bureaucraticness, bureaucraticness. You, you raised a really interesting point. I remember uh, I was in a living room um, with Gordon Campbell during the 2009 election. This was the carbon tax. Election. He was he was a previous yes, leader sorry, of the Peace Liberal Party. Premier Gordon and Campbell. A, and at that time, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, we, sometimes you forget, but introduce people are. So, um, so uh, I was in a living room, and somebody made a point that stuck with me when we were talking about climate change and the environment, and. Uh, they said that in politics, the discount rate is too high. And what I mean by that is this, the discount rate is the opposite of an interest rate, right? If something goes up over time, that's an interest rate. A discount rate is basically, if something is worth 100 today, it might only be worth 50 next year. So if the discount rate is high, right. that means things are work worth less if they happen slower. And the challenge with politics is that political incentives pay off quickly. If I make a decision mm. that produces a good political outcome within this term of office, I reap the political wars. If I make a good decision that is going to have positive consequences that pay, play out over a century, well, that might be forgotten in the next election cycle. So when mm -hmm. it comes to major long-term vexing challenges like climate change, we absolutely have to figure out how to make sure that we're having good long-term conversations. And I think the way you do that is by framing issues uh, as it relates to principle, by mm. framing them in moral terms, by framing them in terms, in generational terms, and by being able to articulate the reason why a decision is the right decision right. for people's children and grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, in, in closing, I wanna be you know very conscious of, of time. Um, what, what's something, what's like the one thing you really want people to be able to take away from this conversation, you know, uh, the people that are watching? What, what's that thing that you're like, I really want you to like walk away with this? Politics is never simple. And if people try to tell you it is, be skeptical. I think it's really important for people to understand that policymaking, politics, it's this huge complicated, you know, ball of string and you pull one thing something else moves it's never ever simple so beware of people peddling simple solutions and look instead for people who are curious and inquisitive and maybe even uncertain hmm. and are trying to actually get to the bottom of questions that maybe we don't even know exist yet because if all we're doing is fighting a rearguard action to defend what was, hmm. how do we define what can be? So I, I'm very focused, you know, my reason for running, my reason for being involved in politics is very future focused. Hmm. To me, it's about trying to be on the leading edge of where the political conversation is on challenges that most people in politics, frankly, don't even know are happening yet. Hmm. So when it comes to automation, virtualization, the changing nature of work. Nobody's talking about it. Right. When it comes to the effects of automated vehicles on insurance, well, we're still talking about a 20-year-old version of the ICBC fight. Nobody's talking about the reality that our insurance needs will change as we move to mobility as a service. Mm -hmm. Nobody is really talking about uh, um, how drastically the skilled needs of the labor market will change. We are still in some ways fighting these old fights I'm a very big believer in looking forward and trying to figure out what are the next challenges that we are going to face? How do we get ready for them? And who do we need at the table in order to make sure that we are ready? I think that climate change is absolutely going to be critical in that regard. I go back to, again, the changing nature of work, the impacts of 
uh, COVID and work from anywhere on what people's expectations are in terms of the work relationship. That's mm -hmm. going to have profound effects on everything, uh, including urban planning, transportation, all of those things. I think again about um, the changing nature of the economy, right? I mean, we need to make sure that we have people uh, in our political system who they're not going to be rocket scientists and robot scientists, but they need to have enough fluency mm -hmm. with our modern technology, our modern culture, and our modern politics to be able to navigate those situations in the political environment. And, and I think, you know, I think I bring that to the table. Um, I think that's something that, that I can offer as someone who has worked in business, who has worked across a wide variety of businesses, who has a deep level of knowledge and passion for politics. Um, I believe that's something I can offer that is, that is fundamentally different. And I believe that uh, uh, on that basis, I can help the BC Liberal Party to remake itself as a party for the future of this province. Party of the future. I love, I love that. Yeah, it's all about the future. Hundred percent. Gavin, thank you so much. Where uh, where can people find you? They can find me online at www.gavindu.ca or just Gavindu, G-A-V-I-N-D-E-W on pretty much any social platform. Amazing. Thanks so much for being part of this thread. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much.